Hello, everybody, and welcome to the most important episode that I have ever recorded. I've been doing this show for five and a half years, and if I could pick one episode to have every single person listen to, Right now, it would be this one. I wasn't at my best. I wasn't as knowledgeable about this subject as others. I wasn't asking as good of questions. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't my, my funniest, but my guest today is such an incredible communicator doing such incredible work trying to save humanity and articulating it in a very clear and accessible way. This is important. Please watch this entire episode, and let's all do what we can to try to save this. How, how should I introduce you, by the way? Um, Nina Pfefferman. Um, I'm a professor in, in both the departments of ecology and evolutionary biology and mathematics at University of Tennessee in Knoxville. Uh, I'm also the associate director for our One Health Initiative. Uh, I'm also the director for the Mathematical Modeling Center. Um, take your pick. Um, okay, um, great. How's the apocalypse treating you? Oh my god. <laughs> I'm, uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of the apocalypse. Yeah. Um, I've, I've, I've never been so consciously jealous of the idea of being a theorist. <laughs> Norm- normally, I'm, normally, I'm an academic theorist. And, you know, I, I think my own reasonably uh, uh, interesting to me and no one else thoughts and write papers and generally get to ignore everything. Last couple of weeks, every, so every, every time there's been a potential pandemic, I become applied and relevant and doing important work. But like this time is crazy. Yeah. So I'm, I'm kind of, at this point I'm doing about three jobs worth of stuff because I'm still, the university hasn't closed. So I'm still officially teaching. I'm still mentoring my graduate students, but I'm also consulting for government agencies and random private people and do trying to do academic work about how to deal with the pandemic also that has nothing to do with either my teaching or my consulting. And everyone needs an answer by Thursday or people somehow are going to die on Tuesday. And oy. Wow. Um, so I wasn't going to start recording, but now this is too interesting. Can I just put it, I might just put an intro in afterwards. Is this okay if I just get rolling and we sure. use this? Um, uh, well, well, thanks for joining me. I, I mean, that, that gives people a nice personal insight of, of, uh, of what you're going through. Why don't um, uh, 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 Nina Pfefferman, who I introduced in an intro, that I edited in, so in my time I didn't introduce her, so I just said her name again. But to you guys, I ha- I'm learning. I'm 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 learning this remote podcasting stuff. Nina, tell uh, tell everyone a little bit about um, what you do. Sure. So um, I am an applied mathematician in the area of self-organizing adaptive complex systems, and and most of what I do is applied to social systems and infectious diseases. So I work a lot in pandemic preparedness for humans. I work in 
uh, endangered animal populations and protecting them from novel diseases that come through. I also work in infectious diseases of computers, so I do some work in cybersecurity. Um, basically, anywhere that you can use math to understand how individual behaviors and, and collective threats interact in order to shape the dynamics of some kind of infectious or, or outcoming emergent process, I do that. Wow. Um, so, so you're the right person to be talking to right now. Uh, I'm one of them. I'm one of them. So, so we've been, um, just to get you up to speed with what I've been doing, I, I think this is the fifth or sixth episode, special kind of pandemic edition of uh, my podcast here. Uh, I'm trying to release about one a day and get as much uh, wow. as many different points of view out there as possible. So far, we've had a lot of um, social science on a lot of um, a lot of like the psychology of scarcity, or um, you know uh, uh, how this is impacting people's social lives, stuff like awesome. that. We haven't talked much about virology or the immune system we we haven't even we haven't even done like a, a 101 of like what is corona um yet which which I'll, I'll have to get to it at some point but i i also just figure some of that's kind of being covered on the news a bit but but if you could give people just kind of like some 101 introduction into what you do in terms of this uh in terms of studying pandemics sure so um I study a couple of different aspects of pandemics. At the most basic level, what I do is study the processes of transmission of infectious disease using math. So it's actually, it's, it's pretty rare for math to be able to directly say important things for the real world with very, very simple mathematics. It's, it's normal to use very complicated mathematics to say important things. It's unusual to be able to use very simple math. Infectious diseases are one of the few cases where we can get really profound, useful insights directly out of math everyone learned in like fifth grade hmm. so the most yeah it's, it's kind oh, of all right i'm into that yeah in so, fifth grade i was pretty good at math <laughs> so were most people and i would argue most people are still pretty good at math we just taught yeah. them really badly and they decided it was not worth it yeah yeah it's not a bad decision but i feel guilty about it because <laughs> um but yeah, so, so basically what, what all modelers do, so I'm, not, I'm a mathematician, but I'm in the subfield of mathematical modeling. Um, and that's a pretty, it's unusual within mathematics for how it's structured. Most mathematicians are, are, so all of us, all of us, what we do is we think deeply about a system and we abstract the logic of the system and then we poke at the logic and say, okay, what are the implications of just the underlying logic? If we strip away all of the bells and whistles and the details of knowing like, oh, this is an animal, or this is a machine, or this is a company. What's, what's the underlying process, and what's the logic of that, and how can we study that rigorously? Hmm. Um, modelers take that one step further a little bit, and instead of, of then poking just at the abstraction itself it, for elegance and beauty to understand what it is we've just said when we, when we make that abstraction, we then also try and figure out which levels of abstraction allow us then to say useful things about the system itself back in the real world. So it's an area of applied mathematics that's very focused on answering questions in, in a rich way. So I like, I like to define modeling for people as uh, becoming a very technical painter, where if you paint a good enough painting of a clock, it will let you tell time. Hmm. And you're not trying to make, a, you're not a, to becoming an engineer, you're not trying to build a clock. 
In fact, building a clock would be a mistake. We don't want all of the complexity of the clock. We want an abstract representation that everyone will understand hmm. of what it means to be a clock. And if we do it well enough, then everyone will know how to tell time. Interesting. And we huh. do it with mathematics. So when we look at disease systems, the infectious diseases, the underlying logic is really very beautiful. And everyone understands it. The underlying logic of an infectious disease system is most people don't have the disease, but could catch it. And some people have the disease, and those are the people from whom everyone else can catch it. Mm. And maybe those people recover from the disease, maybe they die, maybe they're only infectious for a little while. Those are some details that can be really important, but the underlying logic is susceptible people catch the infection from infected people. Hmm. And so already, if we're starting to think about it in terms of mathematics, again, fifth grade math, we can do this. Mm -hmm. In order to catch an infection for something like coronavirus, how do you catch an infection from someone? Well, you have to meet them, right? It's, it's a little less restrictive than catching something like a sexually transmitted disease, mm -hmm. uh, but a little more restrictive than something that can just contaminate your whole environment and there doesn't need to be a person there. You can pick it up from the grass a decade after the last infected person was there. Right. Right. So, like, that would be anthrax. Anthrax is bad. Um, uh, we're, we're, we're going on record right now. <laughs> we're we're, we're going to say anthrax is anthrax. bad. I feel comfortable putting that on the record. <laughs> but no, so the, so I don't I'm, think you're going to get too much blowback from that. Well, it's also quite beautiful. I don't want to denigrate. <laughs> um, but no, so seriously, like, a, an, an animal, like, in Africa, a wildebeest can die of anthrax and decompose into the soil. And that soil can maintain the potential to transmit anthrax to the next animal for wow. years. Um, Interesting. So, seriously. Um, and I, I, when I read models of that, I'm, I'm always blown away by the fact that we haven't all just died of anthrax. Um, but it, 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 it turns out to be, <laughs> oh, boy. It turns out to be <laughs> difficult to transmit. The answer is it's there, but it's hard to catch. Okay. That's why. Uh, I, so I it, it's, it's funny. So, so far, so far, so far <laughs> with this podcast, it's been, so I've, I've been, I've intentionally kind of gone like, I want to be like COVID adjacent. So like, yeah, you, you know, talking about it, but from a different point of view sure. than the same things that people are saying like over and over again. And what, and, and what I've got from this so far is every episode I've gotten like at least one new horrific idea to, to worry about. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> if you need epidemiological horror, anthrax actually shouldn't be your go-to. Oh, we okay. have so many more creepy things. Oh, good. Oh, <laughs> terrific. I, 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 hope, I hope that you'll, by, by the end of the episode, I hope that you'll have shared, shared a few more scares with us. Sure, if you'd like. My yeah. lab actually maintains, because we get pretty robust to these things. You, if you work in these fields, you, you get... It's hard to creep people out after they've done this for a while. So my yeah. mom actually has an internal competition of, of one-upmanship of who can find the next most gross thing that actually gets all of us to go, oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's, yeah. Um, yeah, you, you, you get a stomach for it after a while. Um, it, it's, yeah. you know, comedians, comedians do, this is why comedians get in so much trouble um, publicly is because because you know, to make something funny, you, there there needs to be this this media this sweet spot between what is benign and what is a violation. Um, uh, this is this is my friend Peter McGraw's theory, 
and mm-hmm. and um, you know, uh, like a grandfather too benign, uh, an erection too much, uh, too offensive, but a grandfather's erection. Hey, we can all. Uh, laugh about that. <laughs> that, that, that's the idea. That's uh, not my example, but it ar- articulates it quite well. So, but comedians have such a, uh, a, a skewed sense of what is a violation. Relation. We're so sure. desensitized. So, to be able to make other comedians laugh, you need to be uh, uh, saying such uh, uh, shocking things. To get any kind of a rise. Yes, the aristocrats, exactly. Yep. That's and, not a joke for the public. That's a joke for other comedians. And then and then we then may, then we get some laughs out of comedians and then we make the mistake of like, maybe I should say this publicly, and then the public goes, You're a monster. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my own little that's my ecosystem of uh, nice. uh, uh Yes, exactly. Group. Exactly like that. So I think each of each field breeds its own monstrosity. And then <laughs> the polite fiction is that we just don't show our monstrosities to each other and we're all very nice people. <laughs> um, so what I'd love to do first, just so I don't drive everyone out of their mind with the question that they all want to sure. uh, hear about, why don't you, could you paint a little picture for us of the COVID-19 system? Sure. So uh, of, um, of what we know so far. Okay. So yeah. So I'd like to disclaim that this is all changing in real time as we get more information. So there are things we think we know right now, and and we have varying levels of certainty. Right. Um, so uh, this this is this, this is like there's like the golden age, and there's all, all these uh, the medieval times. Uh, uh, this time is going to be varying levels of <laughs> uncertainty. That is that is the that is the title <laughs> of this era. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so I think in in our defense, I think we're actually we know a lot more than humanity ever has during right. a global pandemic. So it's kind of a, it's a luxury to almost be able to say we know what we don't know. Ah, that's, so that's a great point, yeah. That it's really, it's, it's somewhat empowering because then we know what to go study, right? It, it, during the Black Death in Europe, there were competing theories about what was causing it. And some of them led to some really good public health interventions, even though they weren't right, correct theories. But, they led, but having those theories led to some good ideas. Uh, quarantine comes from plague. The uh, whole idea of quarantine comes from literally making ships wait. The same way that right now we have cruise ships waiting to dock that d- ports don't want them. During Black Death, ports did not want ships, so they made them wait 40 days in the port before hmm. they would let anyone off. That's literally where it's it's quarenta. It's it's uh, 40. It's uh, coming from yeah. M- much much in the way, say like acupuncture might might uh, be like trying to you know originally like oh you get this. Um, uh, the the love point or whatever, or this shocker or that shocker, and then and then they stumble upon things, and then later on, um, science is able to be like, oh, actually, what you're doing there is stimulating this nerve, which is releasing tension in this way, and that's uh, yeah. And, that's and, why and your who's spine to say that isn't stuff. actually the same thing? But for one is uh, from a sort of scientific hypothesis, and the other is from a spiritual hypothesis. Right. It's it's just yeah. languaging the the um uh, the yeah. thing uh, much much in the way um. So, someone with, say, synesthesia that can see music would have a would, would articulate their interpretation of music um, very different than everybody else, but exactly. but at the same time same they're time. still interpreting valid, the same yeah. thing and it's valid and and it is um, accurate. Yeah, yeah. So so okay. So 
the synesthesia version of COVID. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we, we know it's a virus. That's lovely. It's a coronavirus, hence COVID. Um, we have seen other coronaviruses. We, we actually, we experience them all the time. So it's relatives. We know it's cousins. Mm-hmm. Um, probably most of humanity has had a disease caused by one of its cousins because uh, it causes some of, of what circulates as just common colds. Um, it also causes some spectacularly dangerous disease. Its other cousins cause some spectacularly dangerous diseases. So SARS, MERS, um, those, were, those were diseases that we were really scared about in the last uh, decade and a half to two decades or so. Um, and luckily, we're able to be contained. Uh, those are close relatives of the current one. Mm. Um, and now we've got this current one that ha- recently emerged and is going global. Um, it's a respiratory infection, so we know that part. That's really nice. Uh, so re- that me- lets us classify medically where in the body it attacks, where the seat of infection is, where not only does it do damage, but also where does it replicate. So that also gives us some information about a, a hypothesis, not a confirmation, but a hypothesis about how transmission can happen. Mm. And so respiratory infections, because they, they're seated in, in the lungs and, and respiratory system, um, there are a couple of, of normal ways for respiratory infections to transmit, and coronavirus is doing that just nicely. Um, so cough droplets, uh, expired droplets from your breath, from coughing, from sneezing, from spitting, um, we think that's the dom- here's where the uncertainty comes in. We believe at the moment that that is the dominant mode of transmission. Hmm. So that's nice for, for, I mean, it's better than the worst case scenario. The worst case scenario for this would be truly aerosolized transmission. And that's where droplets that come out of you are not actually droplets in the traditional sense. They're literally just very, <laughs> very, very small droplet particles that can hang in the air indefinitely. Oh my God. It, it, is it so... Of, we don't boy. think it's doing that. We and, do not think it's doing that. But what? What, what about? But but that's a future cousin, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> not Kinahara. Not that one. <laughs> yeah. um, we have no reason to expect it would mutate to do that. Right. Um, okay. There are diseases that do that. There aren't a lot. Um, they. We we're we're not going to anticipate worse problems. Right now, we have got enough problems. Let's fix this. One. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, because because so, so far, if coronavirus is uh, our our music, um, COVID nineteen, this is the Beatles. This is like uh, yeah, this yeah, is, this is, this is, this is, this is over. the British invasion, except not <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. It's doing it's it's doing a really good job. Yeah, um, it's a, it, right now. It's it's ancestral viral forms are very proud of it. Yeah, um, yeah. So, but also also hopefully, if it mutates in the future to be something even more transmissible. By then, actually, by having experienced this much transmission, some of the population will have at least partial immunity to it. Mm. So um, that is, that's one of those things that we can show with fifth grade math that's really nice. Um, as long as there's any immune protection from having been infected with something, in the, with a cousin of the thing in the past. So we don't, right now, this is a new enough cousin that we don't think having been infected with colds in the past that were related to it help at all. Mm. But if there's a tiny mutation that's not truly like a whole new cousin, but like, oh, you changed your hair. And instead of truly, a mut- like a, we think of, we tend to talk mm-hmm. about mutations as whole new species. But the answer is you can have just slight mutant variants that change things. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we're worried about like slight mutant variants, it's what we usually call different strains of the same disease instead of a whole new disease. Um, 
that's sort of the viral equivalent of just getting a new haircut or changing your style or going through a midlife crisis. It's not a right. whole new disease. It's just, right, right. It's it's just reinventing itself. Right, exactly. Um, and for many diseases, so not all of them, the human immune system is also really complicated and it has a variety of reactions it can have. So there are diseases actually for which having experience with a disease makes neck, the next infection worse instead of better. Thankfully, those are rare. Um, things like dengue, where you have this primed immune response that's actually much more dangerous if you get it again. Uh, and that does have to do with different strains. Um, mm -hmm. but, but hopefully, again, we're talking about hypotheticals. We don't expect this to happen right now. But hopefully, even if COVID mutated to a more viral strain in the future, um, because it's sweeping the globe at the moment in its current strain, if there's a little bit of immune, residual immune protection, people might still get it, but it might not kill as many people. Hmm. So that is a so, fine distinction in epi. Sorry. So uh, no, uh, I I shouldn't. I should just. You should just be talking. No, no, no. One thousand percent of the time. But I I have um uh it, it for for some people this this might be um um the 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 good news for people that are maybe being exposed um to this right now is that this might in a kind of silver lining for some people be a in a way a vaccine for them for future exposure ah so yes uh, but yes okay. but okay there's a, a critical but when we give people vaccines it's specifically with the idea that that's less dangerous than the disease mm-hmm Right, um, right, right. We we either heat kill viruses and make sure that they're not they're not viruses anymore. They're just the proteins associated with viruses that your immune system can learn from, because the way your immune system recognizes pathogens is from is usually from little protein signatures on the the equivalent of their skin. Um, so what so a lot of vaccines are are heat killed, where you take the virus and you shock it, and it breaks it up from being a virus, and then you just get the little proteins and you you inject those. And your immune system gets to learn to recognize those so that it doesn't need to learn a new, a new invader if you actually are exposed to the disease in the future. It goes, oh, I've seen you before. I know how to kill you. I'll just do that. Mm -hmm. um, or they are what's called an attenuated strain of live virus. Um, that's the, the other kind of inoculation that we give in, in vaccines. Um, and that's when we've specifically scientifically bred a, a disease that has all the same proteins or most of those same proteins, but doesn't cause you to get sick. Hmm. And, and people actually screw this up all the time. People, when you get an inoculation or, a vac or either heat killed or attenuated, you can feel sick for a couple of days. That's not actually making you sick. What you're feeling is your immune system ramping into overdrive to deal with it, and that makes you feel crappy. Hmm. But you're not actually catching the disease, and you can't transmit it to anybody, and it's not dangerous to you. Hmm. You're feeling kind of run down and you might get a few things that you think of as symptoms of the disease, but what they really are is manifestations of your body fighting the disease. And right. essentially your body is, is putting all of its, it's like a war effort. It, Society stops being, it, it feels kind of crappy for a while to be like, quickly, everyone to the front and like defend right. the nation. Much in the same way that a stress response system might mobilize all, all of energy to your legs to run away from danger and maybe shut off the immune system when you're trying to like run from a, a lion, which is it used to it used to be um, you know a silly uh, analogy in a modern 
age to say run from a lion, but who knows now that we're going to have to open up zoos and anything's possible. We might start running from lions again. Um, so, so the reverse is happening when, when the immune system is, is primed and then, and then set in overdrive where the immune system's shutting off all that kind of physical energy to kind of move around. And so is that, um, am so I thinking about it that off? It's, it, Well, it's not so much shutting it off. It's that it's, that it's compromising how you feel in order to keep you safe. It's going, you know mm-hmm. what, normally you feel pretty comfortable in your body because you're used to how it functions and it's functioning well. Mm. And instead of shutting off energy to the other, those other processes, what it's doing is saying, yeah, right now, you know, you, don't, you as a human don't function particularly well mm-hmm. at 103 degrees Fahrenheit. Mm. But you know who functions even worse at 103 degrees Fahrenheit? Your pathogen. Mm-hmm. So we're just going to ramp up your body's core temperature to something that we think the disease inside you can't take. And Fascinating. So even if it makes you a little bit uncomfortable. It's going to make the disease incredibly uncomfortable. And then we're going to have an advantage in fighting the disease. So it's, it's literally like the Russians burning the crops uh, as the invaders came across the landscape in, in, in world wars. Right. I mean, right. The Russians are like, we have food stores, but if you're trying to forage off the land to feed your soldiers, you're going to starve. So right, we're not going to have right, a lot of food. Right. We're definitely going to suffer for this, but we'll survive it. You won't. That's wow, what yeah. the system is doing with things like fever responses. So you're not, it's not that you're shutting down the parts right, that are right. healthy. It's that you're actually, you are compromising them a little bit. I see. You're doing it in order to make the pathogens living in your body even less capable of replicating and making you sicker. So when, when you get sick, you have these two things happening in your body, and we, we experience it as just one thing. We experience it as feeling unwell. Mm-hmm. But there are things that the, the pathogen is actually doing to you, like tissue damage that it's causing because it's living in and destroying your tissue, mm-hmm. or actively taking over your cells and replicating uh, if it's a bacteria, like using it, the machinery uh, if it's a virus to produce more of itself, or, or eating the nutrients if it's a bacteria. All, like, those are things that the virus is particularly or, or bacteria is particularly doing to you. Experience those. Mm-hmm. So this is so fascinating, and uh, I'm just like, man, this it's is such a th- this is such a no, no, no. There's not okay. this, but I should have been learning about this stuff earlier. This is I'm realizing what a blind spot this is um, for me with someone that's been doing a science podcast for five and a half years. I, I'm kind of surprised that I don't know this stuff already. Um, I. It, in terms of these physiological um, uh, um, uh, being physiologically compromised um, mm-hmm. from the immune system, it, is there any kind of psychological um, mechanisms being primed by this? If, if say, if say you are in an environment that your immune system is maybe picking up on um, some bacterial or parasitic threats or something, is, is that? Is there any mechanisms in place that that might theoretically make someone um, psychologically adverse to like new situations, outgroups, um, new, well, new behaviors, that sort of thing? So, okay, so I'm going to say yes and and no. So we don't we don't have hypotheses for good mechanisms for that. There was, however, a really cool study that was not at all mine that I read a few years ago that tried to link political conservatism with parasite yeah. risk. That's, that's what I'm kind of referring to. And, yeah. and that was an incredibly cool study where they, were, they, they just looked sort of qualitatively, but they didn't propose a mechanism. They, they, 
or they talked about some mechanisms, but it wasn't a, like, we're going to go in and test. Here's how this chemical feedback happens in the neuroscience of the brain that does this once you've got a parasite or, mm-hmm. or parasite threat. Parasites, for the record, also have very different interactions with our immune system than viruses and bacteria. Okay. Um, so humans have very complex ecosystems in their body, and the different things that can invade us are kind of as different as if you, if you imagine walking into a woods and then looking around the woods and going, what lives here? What has come into this patch of, of forest? Um, you're going to get trees, and you're also, but you're also going to get maybe grasses and shrubs, and you're also going to get amphibians, and you're going to get birds, and you're going to get mammals, and they're going to be little scurrying shrews, and there's going to be big deer and maybe a moose. Mm-hmm. Um, like, obviously, I'm also, apparently, I'm thinking of a North American forest, but like, Pick your favorite forest. You're going to get this kind of diversity. Those, that's the same kind of diversity, but on a very different scale that you get in terms of potential diseases that can, in, infectious diseases, even if we just limit it to infectious, diseases that can invade your body. So we have parasites and viruses and bacteria and fungi and parasites themselves break down into different classes of like nematodes and helminths. And uh, so we, we so, uh, so the distinction also, right, parasites are living organisms that themselves invade. Um, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I hope whoever, like, I, I know that there's some listeners, um, that have told me that they, uh, because, um, of some of the dense nature of my podcast, they sometimes, rather than, you know, they'll, they'll have lighter podcasts when they're at work and like working in front of their computer that they don't have to pay as much attention to, but they'll listen to this podcast when they're say like in the bath. Um, and, and so I, I'm happy for those listeners listening to all this right now that are getting to listen from the comfort of, of, of a bath. Right of a nice now. bath. Yeah. <laughs> yep, I, I, I want to I be sitting in a tub of sanitizer as I'm, as I'm hosting <laughs> these episodes. Yeah. So, um, uh, so, sorry. No, no, no. Um, no. So, so, yeah, I don't, don't soak in a tub of sanitizer. That won't. That won't help. Okay. Um, well, so, so this is, I am learning so much. Could you give me just a, a little bit of a rundown of the difference between what is, a par- what is the difference between a parasite, a virus, and a bacteria? Absolutely. Okay, let's start simplest and go most, to most complicated. So the simplest one is a virus. Um, that's actually not the simplest disease. It's simply the simplest of the three that you mentioned. The very simplest diseases are prion diseases. Prions are literally proteins that essentially corrupt other proteins around them to become like them. And we don't really understand prions, but they're fascinating. So things like mad cow disease are prion diseases. Um, but then there's viruses. So viruses are incredibly simple there's actually there's actually debate in the scientific community semantically about whether or not viruses are alive or not yeah um, I, I i've seen that what yeah. what's what is the are are they zombies or not do you have a do you <laughs> yeah. have a definitive answer for us there, i don't there, i don't so it's philosophical um it's, it, it, it depends on what your definition of living is kind of right right, right. so it's not zombies so it's, we are we're convinced they're not zombies because the idea of a zombie is it was alive and now it's dead, but it's still moving around and acting as though it's alive in some way. Hmm. Um, well, we do- it's it's interesting because we're having a lot of philosophical debates uh, uh, 
coming or or already have it where we're sitting around being like what is living anyway how, right. how do we define what living is yep. uh, so yep. and philosophers are sitting around being like what are you talking about we've been doing this for thousands of years why are you late to the party like, uh, right yeah so, okay so so a virus yeah, so a virus, um, the reason that there's debate is that it, it, if you think of the definition of life functionally as simply existing and then replicating yourself, so you think, like, essentially, if, you ha if, you're, if it seems like what you do is exist long enough to have kids, and if you call that your definition of life, mm -hmm. then people are like, sure, viruses are alive, because what a virus is is some uh, genetic material wrapped in some proteins. Um, and all it does, it, it literally acts a little bit like a cellular injection needle. It gets into to a body, and then it finds a cell and injects itself into the cell, and then inserts a portion of, so most viruses, they're, they're exceptions to every rule, so I'm describing generic viruses, inserts a portion of its genetic material into the genetic material of the host cell and turns the host cell into a manufacturing plant for more viruses. Hmm. And, it, and then the, the cell stops doing all of its normal things and just makes more viruses until it gets so full of viruses, it bursts, and that releases more viruses. That is amazing. Isn't it? It is beautiful and horrifying. Yes. But you can see also why there's debate about whether or not that's alive, because you could, it's, just, it's, a, it's a biochemical machine. Hmm. So, but, we are, but also humans are biochemical machines. We're just really complicated about it. Um, hmm. but we, we, it, viruses are simple enough that we can look at the virus and just go, oh, here's the, the RNA or, uh, like the, the genetic package. And here's the protein around it that provides the machinery to inject into a cell and to snip the other, the genetic material of the cell and insert the instructions for making more viruses into that genetic material. And then like seal that up, sew it up and be like, okay, start making virus. And the cell goes right off and starts making virus. Um, so, hmm. Like, is that alive? It, it's, it's, that's a philosophical question. I honest, as a scientist, I honestly look at it and I go, I'm not going to be able to answer that. It's a, it's a semantic si philosophical question. I mean, I have a lot of days where I just feel like genetic material wrapped in proteins. Like, that's really all that I am. Yeah, so bacteria is the next. So, so viruses are, are the run-of-the-mill simplest uh, old, boring, old viruses. And, no, it's and then, not simple. Prions. Prions are even simpler. But oh, yes, viruses pri are Because they don't even have the genetic material. They're just the proteins. So how does that work? We have no idea. No, that's a little bit of a lie. We have some idea, but it's... <laughs> It's not entirely, so we ha we're, we're getting better ideas about how prions work, but we don't have good ideas. There's only a couple of, of known good examples of prion diseases. So Kreutzfeldt-Jakob, um, Kuru, which was a great disease. Like, luckily, there's very little Kuru anymore because someone figured out what it was and it was easy to stop because don't eat the brains of your dead relatives turns out to be a great way to not get Kuru. Um, <laughs> there, was, there was one ethnobiologist who went to the cannibals of Papua New Guinea who were the, the seat of this infection and were like, everyone's getting this degenerative disorder where, where your brain melts down. Like, oh my God, this is a terrible degenerative disease. What is it? And this guy figured out it was transmitted in these ritual cannibalistic practices of eating brains of, of the dead. And he just went, oh, don't eat the brains. And then that shut down. Like, 
amazing. Also, <laughs> just that guy's eat, life story Yeah, just eat the livers. And they're like, like, oh, just the livers. Yeah. I mean, so honestly, I'm not totally familiar with, with all of the catabolistic practices, <laughs> but I know that they were, they heard that message and they were like, oh, that's great. And then Kuru dropped amazingly. Um, so that's a prion disease wow. also, we think. Um, so I, we I mean, brain's not even that tasty anyway. Don't knock it till you've tried it. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> that that uh, liver uh, uh, that has all of that uh, uh, still being processed vegetable. That's what you want to. <laughs> that's what you want to eat first. Um, all right, just just a little tips out there for for uh, anyone thinking uh, of turning uh, to cannabis uh, in these uh, troubled uh, times. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right, don't eat the brains. <laughs> Um, all right, so so we we don't have a clue what prions are out or barely. Um, just don't eat brains. Viruses are the next run up in terms of complexity, and then after that, bacteria. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, and then so the big grand finale is going to be parasites, I guess. It is. Spoiler it is. alert. I mean, there's also fungi. Fungi are amazing. Um, oh man. Okay. Well, this is this is now a four-hour episode. Yeah. No, we won't. I promise not to. So okay. So the the, the, the again, I'm going to do averages. I'm going to distill down okay. to like here's the the nugget of bacterial description. Yeah. A bacteria is a single-celled organism that that replicate. It doesn't use the host body to replicate, but it steals the nutrients of the host body and lives in the environment of the host body very happily. So where its habitat. Mm. Um, and it replicates by fission. It, it literally keeps splitting in two. Hmm. Um, so when we talk about exponential growth of bacterial cultures, that's why. Because um, literally every bacteria lives for, as, like, if it can get the right nutrients to, to build uh, a copy of itself, what it does is just get pretty big, build a like, copy its own uh, genome, split in two, and go off on their separate ways as two different bacteria, and then do that again. Hmm. Um, and, and and bacterias uh, bacteria is kind of um, we have a lot of symbiotic relationships with. Oh yeah, yeah no. So there, so so both viruses and bacteria, there are a lot. So no, we don't have symbiotic relationships with viruses, but we have a lot of viruses that live on us routinely that don't make us sick. Uh huh. Um, and then for bacteria, we have a lot of bacteria that live on and in us that not only as so as you said, uh, not only don't make us sick, but we need them. Mm -hmm. um, our digestion relies on being colonized by a diversity of good beneficial bacteria. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's actually... Mm -hmm. Is there anything to all this, uh, you know, the new probiotic craze going on out there? Where you, yeah. Uh, yeah. Not as much as is out. I mean, not as much as the hype would suggest, but yes. Right. So we're, it's, again, this is one of those things where we know we don't know enough. We're just now starting to understand all of the feedbacks between things like the gut microbiome and the brain. Hmm. Um, but even just for digestion to work well, yes, absolutely. Probiotics are great. What you're doing is essentially cultivating your garden of the right bacteria to keep you healthy. In it, is this a more useful time than normal? And, and as we're all quarantining and sanitizing everything in sight, is, is this... Is this a more or less necessary um, time for a probiotic, would you say? Okay, so this is not my area of expertise, but I would go with it's, it's incidental as long as you're getting enough nutrition in your diet. Mm, okay. so, what's so unless you take an antibiotic. So if you take an antibiotic, that actually does a good job of killing a bunch of the good bacteria that live in you. Mm -hmm. um, that really disrupts a lot of things. And the way usually that we recolonize our guts is by passively ingesting a whole bunch of bacteria that we normally don't like to think about, but like are around us because humans. Um, mm -hmm. And we do it in doses that aren't enough to make us sick. And we do it in doses that are 
of these bacteria that are beneficial primarily, not, not ones that are pathogenic. So the, the definition of a pathogenic thing is a thing that makes you sick. Mm. Um, so that's why we call the category of viruses, bacteria, blah, 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 about disease pathogens. I see. Because we're, we're trying to make that distinction between the zillions of viruses and bacteria that are out there all over the place that don't make us sick and, in fact, sometimes keep us healthy. And, and the, ones the ones we need to be aware of. <laughs> yes, yes. So that's why it, it's sometimes the language gets confusing, especially in communication to lay audiences of like, oh, there are this many germs on a surface. And you're like, yes, but none of them are the germs that will make you sick. So mm. there's a, a really big difference between worrying about pathogens and worrying about bacteria. Bacteria, zillions of them everywhere all the time. Pathogens, zillions of them less everywhere, less all the time. So people investing in black lights to scan their homes for every little germ, that's, that's not really uh, going to be terribly useful. Probably not. So, I mean, black light, again, there, there are different signals that signal black light, but yeah, don't, you'll drive yourself crazy and it won't help. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I guess I'm asking just because you see some of these things on the news of like, we went into a bathroom and we took a black light in there and like, here's a black light in a hotel room. And I, I, I don't, yeah, uh, how, so, how, how troubling should we find those? Okay. So here's the thing. So I think, I, I, I think asking also, as someone who usually lives on the road and stays in lots of Airbnbs and hotel rooms. Um, yeah. Uh, so I, <laughs> I'm, yourself. I'm, I'm going to be patient zero for something at some point. Hopefully not, but yeah. So, okay. So, so brace yourself. I, I saw actually you had a really cool podcast on disgust. Yeah. So here's the thing about this question. There are, there are two things that humans are confusing when we ask this question. One is, do we find this environment disgusting? Right. And the other is, is it dangerous? Yeah. And so the idea of these black lights in hotel rooms of like, everything is covered in semen. <laughs> yeah. And the answer is like, humans generally find semen to be not what they want dried all over their environment as a matter of comfort against disgust. Yeah. Right, but it's not dangerous. Yeah, it's yeah. So, <laughs> I've been trying to tell people this for <laughs> If there's one thing people can take away from, right. from this it's podcast. Right, semen, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, so don't get me wrong, diseases can live in semen. Right. But they usually have to be, literally, this is what semen usually does, they have to be injected right. into a living body to transmit well. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Or, or, like, Passively ingest, like some semen has to get into places in the body. Yeah. Actively, like dried semen that's just crusty on stuff, like gross, but that's a, that's a human disgust response, but right. it's not a, a medical problem. Well, this is, this is really interesting, um, you know, the, the features that we have adapted with in these, in these, these many kind of uh, heuristics, these rules of thumb that, that we have to... You know, we, we evolved to kind of pick up on some indicators long before there was science, before there was oh, yeah. germ theory, before there were these tools. Evolution just kind of favored some tendencies that, that made us avoid or be drawn to things. And, and, this, and this was by no means perfect. These were no, just these. But it's, but it's also, it is, as you pointed out, it's evolutionary, evolutionarily beneficial. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't have certainty about which things are dangerous, it is true that a lot of things that come out of human bodies transmit disease. So, right, respiratory infections, coughing, sneezing, like snot, 
Snot has a lot of stuff in it that can get other people sick. Vomit mm -hmm. has a lot of things in it that can get other people sick. Feces have a lot of things in them that can get other people sick. Urine's usually pretty fine. But again, like semen, urine, if you, have, if you put it in the grand scheme of like stuff that comes out of other people should be, should be avoided. Mm -hmm. that's a good rule of thumb for keeping yourself healthy. Mm. Like if, some, if someone else squirts something out of them, <laughs> just don't play with it. Just leave it alone. <laughs> that's, a, that's actually a good tendency. So yeah. Passive evolution of just someone had a trait that said, I find this kind of gross or even yeah. learned. It doesn't even have to be genetic. It can be learned. And we think that a lot of disgust is learned. This um, is this is why the the fake poop and puke at a at a gag shop at Spencer's Gifts works so well because never in our evolutionary environment were people making plastic believable looking. Right. <laughs> if anything resembled anything like that, you should run. Right, and and, and it's not it's not costly. We weren't like. Oh, we, we don't get that food source because there's a barrier <laughs> of plastic poop in front of us. <laughs> um, oh. So right, so so we could see how selection, how neutral selection, yeah. um, that just like going well, how healthy and how many how many healthy babies did the people who avoided the gooey substances that came out of other humans? How many healthy mm -hmm. babies did they get to have versus how many healthy babies did? The, the humans get to have who were like, yes, go play in the vomit puddle, small child, have at it. Right. Um, you can see how the, the kids right. of the more, um, more discussed, amenable people would do right. better. So they should have more kids. So we should, as a population, that, that's literally all that evolution is. The idea of selection is the idea that you have this behavior or this trait that makes it marginally more likely that you survive and reproduce. Hmm. And so your kids are likely to have the trait and there's likely to be more of them because that's literally what it means to be more likely to survive and reproduce is you get to have more of your babies out there in the world surviving and reproducing. Yeah. Uh, that, and that's interesting when, when the environment, you know, changes quickly too. what, what was a uh, germaphobe one day is, is just prescriptive uh, <laughs> normal behavior. Uh, the next, it, it might yeah. be, it might be all of the, all of the germaphobe hypochondriacs of our, our generations are the ones that are going to have the, the fittest offspring in in the uh, in the next they, generation. They may. I will say we have. I would I would put in a plug for the non germaphobes among us. Yes. We are luckily smart enough to adapt our behaviors, yeah. so not biological adaptation, but to adapt our behaviors to go. Right now, the germaphobes are right, and so I can behave as though I was a germaphobe. Right. And that is appropriate, and right. maybe that will keep everyone safe, which is our whole idea of social distancing. Right. That is, right. That's right. Our whole idea. Right. But, Pretend to be agoraphobic for two weeks. Right. 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 And then, uh, and then, you know, but under normal conditions, um, being agoraphobic, you, there's a tremendous costs on that individual. Yeah. 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 I um, mean, and that's that again under normal conditions. That's a terrible burden and an act and a serious mental health illness. I mean, this is this is going to be some something that I haven't heard anyone talk about. Is that it, you know, I I kind of. Um, have been I feel a little foolish for it in this crisis, but I I have been um, uh, preaching that 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 we're kind of almost psychologically allergic to modern living. Um, uh, uh, the the kind of adaptive fear responses that we have for our old environment 
um, makes makes people unnecessarily adverse to traveling or taking in other cultures and stuff like that. And I'm I'm very pro. Everyone should get out there and take in life and have new more new experiences. But not and, right now. But not not right now. But yeah. but you know, say a vaccine comes and you know we get past this one and we we think of these wonderful social um, things that we can implement, like like uh, we have. Um, um, kind of pandemic fire drills or something that we start doing a how, how to hit the pause button on an economy when something like this happens again. But what I, what I hope is that, is that people don't start sheltering themselves when they, when they don't need to, because there's going to be costs involved uh, yeah. then if, if this does turn everyone into a full-time germaphobe and people, and people don't, don't adjust when things go back to normal, that's going to have its own costs. Yeah. So I, I take solace in that, that that's not likely from what we know about human psychology. Uh-huh. So, so the analogy that I, I've been making to people right now is, uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a brutal one, so just please take it in the, in the spirit in which it's meant. Mm-hmm. But if you can remember, if you lived through and can remember how it felt to be in, in the United States in the weeks immediately after September 11th in mm-hmm. 2001, those that sentiment of oh my god the ground has fundamentally shifted this this, the fundamental security of the nation is now a totally different profile is anyone ever going to really feel safe opening the mail because there might be powder form of anthrax is anyone really going to feel safe going to a large public gathering because it might blow up Um, Mm -hmm. do we have to be suspicious of each other because racial profiling now based on global patterns in terrorism um, what does what does this mean for I mean there there were, there were some truly terrible things going on in the national psyche in those weeks immediately following September 11th that weren't just about the response to the actual tragedy and loss of life and, and emergency responders trying to dig out of, of the rubble of the towers. And like terrible things were happening across the nation in terms of feeling like, do we ever get back to a sense of, of normal societal engagement without having to have that underlying distrust of our environment that it might just explode Mm. um and and of course the answer to that is it's a normal human response to have that question but the nice thing is that humans are actually en masse pretty resilient and and when we identify threat we do tend to go into panic mode and we do it badly and right now we're doing this all terribly badly Mm -hmm. um there are there are smart ways to handle pandemics and there are stupid ways and right now we are pretty much globally doing this very stupidly Mm. Um, but, but I have a lot of faith that, as you say, instead of doing sort of pandemic fire drills, what we could do is actually have better baseline education mm-hmm. so that if this happens again, we don't instantly go into stupid mode. Mm-hmm. Um, cause this would all be so much better even right now. We have way better tools for fighting coronavirus right now than we're using. Uh, like, like what? Uh, tell, tell people how, how people can best navigate, from your point of view, this, this situation, uh, individuals and society. Sure. So, in and, the- and by the way, if, if your last um, point, if I take anything away, uh, it's, it's, that, it's that all of these new habits, uh, all these new yoga habits that people are starting, uh, uh, we, we probably can't expect them to last <laughs> beyond this quarantine either is the, is the well, downside. Well, so, right, so, so individual psychology tells us actually that it depends on whether or not they're coping mechanisms or their self-soothing mechanisms. Yeah, yeah. So if, hmm. if we adopt healthy habits as coping, mm-hmm. then when we're no longer challenged by the environment, 
the theory tells us that we should, we'll probably stop doing them even if we mean really well. Mm-hmm. But if instead what we're doing is anchoring happiness to them, if they're mm-hmm. self-soothing, if what we do is go, you know what, I've discovered how to be happy. And that's because right now is terrible, but it's going to be the thing I associate with happiness going forward, whether or not the world is terrible. Then we might be able to pick up, to keep them. If we, if you, if you like your habits, you're picking up right now in isolation. Yeah. Instead of thinking of them as how you cope with the world being awful, if you think of them as, as just how you find your center, we, we know that we're a little bit better at keeping those. Holy crap, you are a very, very smart human being. And <laughs> such a good communicator. Thank you. Uh, so, so, all right. I, I want to listen to you. How, how can people be smarter right now? Okay, so, so right now, individuals, um, this, so this is, this is a little bit cynical on my part. There's not a huge amount individuals can do differently other than please take social distancing and personal hygiene seriously. And that mm-hmm. doesn't mean go crazy. Um, that doesn't mean disinfect your walls. It doesn't mean um, like refuse to be in the same room as your family unless someone is actively sick. Um, it means take reasonable, we, we, most of us understand some baseline understanding of what germs are. Wash your hands. Don't touch your face. If you, when we say social distancing, we every time someone says that, I go, oh, oh, like I, I like something goes off in my there. It's that's that's the one that's that's the one I've been having the hardest time with is the not touching my face. I'm like, oh my god, we all do. Okay, so here's so, but even that, I think we've done a bad job of explaining the why. There's a yeah. why to don't touch your face. Mm-hmm. This is a respiratory illness. It may, we think it makes people sick by getting into the respiratory system. Your face has a bunch of openings that drain directly in to the region. To, look, they drain into your throat. Your throat has both your trachea and your esophagus, your, your windpipe and your food pipe. And, it, and you have a little flap, the epiglottis, the epiglottis that just sort of flaps between the two. It's really easy for things in your mouth, in your nose, in your eyes to get washed into like little bits of, of, of fluid. It's not like trying to swallow food that's solid that has to, like if it, if it goes down your windpipe, you choke and you have to expel it by force, by coughing forcefully. Little bits of virus in tears, in snot, in saliva can wash pretty easily into the trachea and then infect your lungs. Mm. So the reason we're saying don't touch your face is you're going to get virus on your hands and then when you touch your face, what you're doing is mushing virus into your eyes, nose, and mouth. And then that's how you're going to get it into your respiratory system. So the answer to that is try not to touch your face. But if you touch your face, don't freak out. Go wash your face. Wash your hands a lot because then when you forget and touch your face, there won't be virus on your hands to mush into your face. Um, when you wash your hands, also, if you have moisturizer, use moisturizer more than, than usual because your hands are probably not used to being washed really well this often. And it's harder to wash your hands effectively if they're dry and cracked. Mm. Um, your, skin, your skin has really good defenses against viruses. We actually have surface peptides, surface proteins that live on our skin that our innate immune system makes that just deactivate viruses that land on us after a little while but we keep washing those away because it's more important to get rid of the virus it's much more important to get rid of the viruses don't take away from this that you shouldn't wash your hands Mm -hmm. do take away from this that you should take care of your hands so that they continue to provide that barrier Mm. so that you can keep washing them as a smooth surface right if you've got a like if, if i give you a raggedy crotchety rock and i say get this clean or instead i give you a beautiful smooth stone and i say get this clean 
much easier to clean the stone. Mm-hmm. Right. So, mm. so, so those are the things that individuals can do. Take care of yourself, mm. but don't go insane. Remember that what you're doing is limiting transmission. And the other, the other thing I want individuals to do to be smarter, humans are, we are all, me, too, me included, we're bad at remembering to be scared of things we can't see. Mm. And viruses, especially this one, is dangerous when we can't see it. We have really good evidence that the virus can transmit before a person looks sick mm-hmm. or feels sick. So a person being really responsible and going like, the minute I feel sick, I'm not going to go anywhere can still get a lot of people sick. And we are bad at remembering, like we're pretty good at going like, that guy is oozing on the beans. Maybe I won't buy beans. Um, But we're not good at going, oh, you know, seven people just picked this up and put it down. I'm going to pick it up and put it down also and not worry about it because nobody around me looks sick. Hmm. So so on an individual level, remembering that, that, that our gut intuition about diseases is not great. And we need to engage our brains as thoughtful thinking people who can. And that doesn't mean overkill, just be like all panic all the time, but it means being responsibly aware of yourself and taking care of the things we know are threats, even if you can't see them. Hmm. And then on a societal level, this is where, this is where we could really make a huge difference and we haven't been. Um, Right now, so we, we've, missed a, we've missed the window of containment. We're not containing this. There's no, there's no scenario in which we wake up in a month and we've shut this all down. Mm-hmm. Um, we, there are some incredibly strict scenarios that we could engage in as a matter of policy if we get individuals to all buy into policy that could mean that even though it's not completely gone, it's 100% manageable in a mm-hmm. month. And when I say manageable, what I mean is sick people having access to the care they need to survive. And that's what we mean when we're saying flatten the curve. As epidemiologists, when, if you've heard that, if you've seen the hashtag, if you've heard the, the call to arms of everyone behave nicely, flatten the curve, that's what we mean. We mean try and make this last longer. It's counterintuitive. We're trying to make this last longer. Not, we're not trying to shorten it. We're trying to make it last longer because The longer it lasts, what it means is that at any given moment, fewer people are sick and we have more time. We have more time to figure out which which, uh, medicines might help. We have more time just in terms of the number of hospital beds we can put people in. If you you have two people in the same level of, of severity of illness and one of them has a hospital bed and medical care and the other one doesn't, the other one is more likely to die. So making sure that fewer people are sick at the same time, even if we don't improve treatment options at all, access to treatment is what we mean when we say flatten the curve. Right now, if we don't do something pretty drastic, the country is going to have a staggered response, but almost everywhere will eventually have their healthcare system overwhelmed by some amount. Mm. And that doesn't just mean people are in danger from coronavirus. That means that people are in danger from everything that they would normally take for granted not having to worry about because they have access to a doctor. If you cut yourself and need stitches and every doctor is occupied already dealing with 17 coronavirus patients where they only had capacity to deal with eight, then you may not be able to get stitches. If that cut becomes infected, you need someone to prescribe you antibiotics. If you, God forbid, have a heart attack and it takes 10 minutes longer when you get to the emergency room, presuming you still get to go to the emergency room, 
and someone doesn't get to see you instantly, you are more likely to die of that heart attack, which is something we know how to handle most of the time. But if the, oh, if the system is overwhelmed, people are going to be dying of not coronavirus. So when we say we need to flatten the curve, we are not just talking about death by coronavirus. We are talking about things we take for granted as not killing us right now because medicine. If we overwhelm medicine, we lose that security. So when we say this as a societal level, so when, forgive, I don't want to get too political, but when the president does things like say, we can open the country up back by Easter, that in my soul. I mean, that, that man's, he's, he's dangerous and he's, he's, he's a dangerous, dangerous, dangerous human being. Yeah. Um, yeah. There is zero doubt about it. And anyone that's defending anything that he's saying or anything that he's doing is also endangering all of human yeah. civilization. Oh, yeah. And, and I think we just, we've done such a bad job messaging that as a, as a combative message as public because it's being heard as a political message. Mm -hmm. Because it is true. Also politically, I don't like his policies when we're not in the middle of a global pandemic. And so I think people are used to hearing messages of criticism of policy mm -hmm. from scientists on other things and then conflating that political belief with, is there a clear right thing to do? And the answer is, right now, scientifically, there is a clear right thing to do. And it is shut down as much as possible so that we don't overwhelm the healthcare systems and then institute better federal infrastructure. Right now, we have this incredibly stupid plan of essentially every state for itself, and even within the states, some of the states, every city for itself. We know that works badly. We, I, can, I can explain to toddlers why that works badly. Imagine that I dump a bunch of M&Ms on a table, and I say, eat as many M&Ms as you want, and you're alone in the room, and you know no one else is coming into the room. Yeah, you're probably going to grab a handful of M&Ms and enjoy them, but you're not going to finish the M&Ms. If there's a zillion of them, you're going to leave them there for later because you just enjoyed your M&Ms, and now there's a diminishing return. Like, the next one's fine, but I know that in three hours, I'm going to really enjoy eating more M&Ms again. If instead, I have a, a birthday party of five-year-olds competing with me for my M&Ms, I am eating as many M&Ms right now as possible because otherwise those M&Ms are going to go away and I don't get to have them at all. Right now, we do not want a system where everyone looks at our ventilators and our masks and our gowns and goes, someday we're going to need these. I'm going to have to get them now. It's the same thing as the, I don't know why people are hoarding toilet paper, but the same thing as toilet paper. No one <laughs> needs all that toilet paper right now. Everyone is going, someday I might not be able to get this, so I'm yeah. going to take it now. Mm -hmm. And that's not irrational, but it does lead to a whole bunch of asymmetry and access and when you're talking about medical care it what we should be doing is funneling what is needed to where it is needed and with an understanding and a promise and an infrastructure that ramps up that says and then when you need it later here's how we're going to get it to you doing that having someone who stands up and says here are our plans operations research this isn't even science medicine this is a field of, of logic and engineering that came out of World War II to make sure that we could manufacture things quickly enough to meet national need in wartime. Operations research is the field that we need the most right now in terms of medical infrastructure to figure out systems where, yes, people are doing amazing research right now. Like, lay people are doing incredible engineering research, 3D printing, 
masks and 3D printing valves for ventilators that can be hooked up to scuba masks. There was one I was looking at in Italy now, there's a scuba diving mask that can be rigged for, for an emergency. If you don't have a ventilator and you have someone who won't get it, like it's not a good first pass, don't, don't opt for the scuba gear instead. But if you don't have access to the next ventilator and you wouldn't get one, but for someone has some scuba equipment and a new valve and you can hook it up to a CPAP machine, someone is working on that. That's incredible. So we have, like Dyson is designing new ventilators. We're building more old ventilators. These, all of these new things as they come in to the system, we don't right now have a centralized response for how to get them where they need to be in a way that guarantees that places that don't yet need them won't try and snap them up because that is actually responsible for them to do because yeah. no one is guaranteeing. So they're not being immoral and snapping that up. We're wrong headed in their thinking. Like if I was a governor of Wyoming right now where people are doing zero social distancing and there's also not a lot of infection, I would still be going like, we're going to get overwhelmed at some point. I'm going to need those. I too should be bidding right now. I mm -hmm. should be trying to get some. And the answer is you don't need them yet. Mm-hmm. But it would, but it would be, make no sense for me, the scientist, to tell people, don't get them, you won't need them. You will. You will need them. What we actually need to do globally, but, but certainly nationally, is have the political and social will to demand coordinated response and then trust the system. And right now, we don't have trust in the system. Well, how could you? I, I mean, yeah. it, it's, uh, you, you know, it's, it's um, ha having watched... Uh, my a lifetime of just a blank check being written to have the latest and greatest aircraft and bomb and tank that just ends up in storage collecting dust and no one even ends up training with just a blank blank check for for rambo uh like if this was godzilla we'd be ready um yeah. well and, maybe and and but but to then to then see that same um uh, system bickering over whether or not we should get more ventilators yeah. for people and spend money on ventilators or yeah. if we should cut some corners and save some expenses on ventilators is uh, just, I mean, it's just beyond absurd. Um, yeah. I, I've been a comedian for, for 16 years and it's hard for me to find the joke there. Um, because it's, it's, uh, I, I don't know. It's very, it's troubling. Yeah. It's, um, but it, I mean, I take, I take comfort a little bit in the idea that it's very human Yeah. because, because also it's easy to lose track when there's an obvious threat. It's easy to lose track of the diversity of threat that we always face. Right. And which one is the next one is challenging to figure out. So right now it's ventilators and it's really easy to say to ourselves, how did we not just mass produce a hundred thousand ventilators and have them sitting around for this. And, and as an epidemiologist in my soul, part of me is like, it's not like we didn't say a respiratory pandemic was eventually going to happen. Right. But also it is true that like there are finite resources in the universe and there are lots right. of threats and it's probably not Godzilla, but you know, it could, there's three years ago, we were all fent We were all worried maybe Zika or Ebola right. and ventilators were not the thing for that. Um, and so I, I really, I, this is just me and I'm not disagreeing with you. It's, a tr yeah. it's incredibly ridiculous that we're so well prepared for some things and so underprepared for others. Right. But I really like a portfolio response. I like thinking of our risk profile the way yeah. that, that so my, my husband is in finance. Businessmen talk about risk profiles for their investments. 
they don't say, oh, the most, the most lucrative or the most risky stock is this, and so I'll avoid the most risky stock and I'll invest only in the most lucrative one. They balance right. their risk portfolio. We're bad at balancing our risk portfolio in terms of what we prepare for, for existential threat. Mm-hmm. And, but that's not even the, that's the anticipatory problem. Right now, we're just in the response phase. We're not in the, in the preparedness phase. Mm-hmm. We're in the response phase. And even in that, Right now, it would be so much better. And I don't know who to tell. So hopefully, like you and your listeners, go figure out who this should be. But, but seriously, if the federal government won't do it, the governor should find, there should be a coalition. There should be someone making a, the same way that, we're, that right now we're seeing hospitals spin up panels of bioethicists to figure out who's going to get scarce resources and when and why. This should not be a free-for-all where we're just going to have the strongest competitors have the most resources as states or as hospitals, or as cities. Um, And it shouldn't be that the messaging, right now we're failing at messaging, and it shouldn't be that people who don't believe it's a threat because they're listening to the wrong advisors die. And that's, to me, that's the greatest tragedy, because there's nothing wrong with listening to a political advisor you have trusted so far. If you're not an expert in this, that's what what a, a logical, responsible person does. They go, here are things I don't know about, and I will listen to an expert who does that I trust. And right now we have some people who are standing up and, and saying things as though they are experts when they are not, but it's not the responsibility of the people listening to them to try and figure that out. And so in my mind, the greatest tragedy of this is that people doing nothing wrong and trusting the wrong voices are going to be at increased risk of death. And we really shouldn't let that happen as a nation. We should really do something as a matter of public policy to try and insulate people from simply being badly advised and, and coming together. If, if it, if it's the governors, I wish, I wish it was the federal response. I wish the federal response would stop telling governors it's your problem. Why aren't you fighting each other to get the resources? Um, but if we're not going to have a unified federal response, if our federal government is going to fall down on the job that badly, then we are, we are these United States and we can unite without leadership. If there's enough leadership at the mezzo level, we can create that leadership. We can fill that gap, but it needs people to stand up and say, okay, then in that case, my responsibility as the governor of Minnesota or, or Texas is not just to t- safeguard Minnesotans and Texans. It is to safeguard the nation. And we can do that best by collaborating. We have always fought systemic existential threat as humans together. There's a reason that World War II was the Axis powers and the Allies powers, and it was not just Germany versus Great Britain. Um, we, we come together well, and we handle incredible threats. Mm-hmm. And we don't do it by squabbling with each other. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, this is amazing. I could listen to you talk all day. Uh, you're, you are terrific. Um, can, I, uh, can I ask you just to end on... Maybe a lighter note, and maybe this will be even <laughs> scarier. Uh, but oh we we have this is this is um, this is uh, just um, just to tie up the loose ends of our of our conversation. One, I de- I, I still I need to hear about parasites uh, oh, sure. because of we course. haven't. So you, you know we had prions, that's child's play, and then viruses. Okay, everyone's into the viruses now. We get it. Bacteria, a little more complexity. 
But uh, for all the hipsters out there, let's, let's tell them about um, parasites. So, okay, so parasites are awesome. Parasites are animals that invade us and cause disease. So, so bacteria are, are definitely living single-celled <laughs> organisms, but they're not animals. Parasites yeah. are animals. So we get worms. We get um, nematodes. Like, seriously, Google them. They're amazing. Um, <laughs> but, so this is where the animal invades us, and it can either eat us directly where it's, where it's feeding on us, and it's parasitizing us as nutrition. <laughs> this is just like the most horrifying conversation oh, it's awesome. I've ever yeah. had in my it's and so fascinating. Nice. This is it's this so is nice. amazing. Okay. The most horrifying diseases, I swear to God, fungal diseases of insects. Oh, we still gotta do fungals. Oh, okay, okay, okay. We'll we'll get to it. Do you have the time? Or, um, or... I do do you think it's gonna be something anyone wants to listen to? Absolutely. I... Yeah, okay. yeah. This I mean... is well, I mean, academics. I, I think we all love I, our subject. <laughs> I well, I I I sure hope that that my listeners are like me and could and could listen to you talk all day. This is fascinating. Um, um so, but so, but if we can maybe maybe let's. Uh, I, I think I asked you to block off ninety minutes, so uh, that would give us fifteen more minutes. Sure. Is that okay? Sure. I don't, yeah. don't want to. I know, you're, not, I know you're very, very busy, and I'm sure tired and everything else. I appreciate else. it. So, so believe it or not, right now, this feels to me very much like a break and downtime because the rest of the time, I'm literally the last three weeks, all I've been doing is rapid spire mathematical models to get very concrete answers to inform very particular problems so yeah. that I try and help people stay alive. Or Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. Um, or uh, sleeping or quick conversations with journalists to try and get the word out. So yeah. right now, this feels like a lovely break for me because I get to, to, for a few minutes again, feel like just an ivory tower academic talking about these things I love and find fascinating. Yeah, and so, you're so good at it. And, and thanks again for being on Stand Up Science last year as, as well. And well, I had a blast and, doing and, that. And trying to explain uh, some me. of this stuff to people. So, so parasites are animals. Like, So we got worms. Let's, uh, let's yeah. just go through. I so just... <laughs> so, so, yeah, so, so what's happening is that there are different ways that these animals can use us. And they can either literally eat us. They just need the nutrients. <laughs> but more often, they live in us as habitat. And so the same way that we, um, like right now we build houses and that's lovely. But before humans built houses, we would wander around and be like, oh, this is a nice cave. And this cave has, you know, this fruit tree out front. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live here. This is a, this is a good spot for, for me to set up as a person. I have food. I have protection. I, it's warm. I'm good. Um, parasites get into our bodies and feel that way about our bodies. And then yeah. cause problems from that. And some of them are, are brazen, like tapeworms. Tapeworms are brazen about it. They don't actually necessarily eat us. They literally get in us and they're like, this is a warm, comfy place and food keeps coming down that esophagus into the stomach. I'm just going to live here in the intestine. And as the stomach tries to process food for the human, I'm just going to eat it instead. Um, so it's not even really eating us. It's using us to, to, pre to forage for and then pre-process its food for it. And then we, we don't get, we don't, we aren't damaged by the tapeworm. We're damaged yeah. by the lack of nutrition because then we don't get to eat the food we're eating. The tapeworm does. Right. Um, so, so there's, ah, just touched my face. I got to hurry. <laughs> Did you wash your hands? I, I have. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm, then, I'm, then I'm not as worried for you. Okay, all right. Um, but uh, so there's the ones that eat us directly. There's the ones that live in us and eat our nutrition instead. Um, and then there's also, there's, there's technically, they're, they're called parasitoids. Um, 
They're ones that only use us when during a particular life stage. So like they'll lay eggs in us and their eggs will hatch into pupae and their pupae will eat us. But then when they, when they uh, uh, metamorphose into adult form, they don't need us anymore. So those aren't true parasites. Those are parasitoids because they only need us for one portion of their life cycle. Hmm. And then there are really cool parasites that are also, that have different phases. So like malaria uses different parts of us depending on where it is in its life cycle. Um, and that's awesome. And then malaria is also really complicated because it also has a life cycle in a mosquito. So you can actually take malaria from one person and put it in another person and that won't cause malarial infection. It actually needs to go through a mosquito to have wow. a different part of its parasite life cycle develop in the mosquito and then use the mosquito as an injection needle to inject the eggs back into the next human. And then the, it's so cool. This is, this is cool and scary and fascinating. Yeah, amazing. I mean, Malaria is awesome. I have, I have, some, I have, I have an actual <laughs> research grant to study uh, the evolution of malaria and, and in, in birds and, and mosquitoes in, in Hawaii. And oh my God, do I love that research. Um, but yeah, okay, so those are parasites and parasitoids. And then there's fungi. And fungi break all the rules. And they're incredibly cool. Um, so fungi for humans, usually we don't get sick with fungal infections. We don't get badly sick with fungal infections most of the time. So Things like um, athlete's foot, skin and roundworm, um, even though, it's round, sorry, not round, it's either roundworm or ringworm. One is a parasite, the other is a fungus, and I always screw up which one is which. Um, but uh, um, one of them is a fungus. So, so uh, things, things that annoy us but don't necessarily kill us, fungal infections for humans, but then you get fungal infections of insects. And that's actually zombie disease. Yeah. So there are, there are fungi, Cordyceps that take over the brains of insects and change how they behave. Yeah, so it benefits the fungus, which it, is amazing. Yeah, there's, there's, they, they. Fortunately, we now live in a in an era where we can see wonderful video of this on uh, on like David Attenborough documentaries and, and stuff. Yep, and there are these great photos of like sporulated fruiting bodies of fungies like uh, exploding out of the heads of dead ants and things and. It's, it's, it's marvelously gross, but not for nothing. We do have diseases that, that manipulate our, our behaviors as humans. They're not fungal, but we do have good examples of diseases that absolutely manipulate us into transmitting them better. Rabies mm -hmm. is the best example in the world, right? Rabies transmits through saliva, and it's a disease that hypes you up on adrenaline so you don't sleep, but you don't sleep so you become paranoid and you get hyper-aggressive. Then it makes it painful to swallow and you start hypersalivating. So you're drooling and not swallowing and also hyper-aggressive and paranoid and violent. <laughs> also, it makes it impossible to sedate you because, again, adrenaline. And you're on, you have so much adrenaline that you honestly, you, you become somewhat less able to pain. <laughs> so you have a hyper-vigilant, wow. paranoid, ultra-violent, violent, not ultra-violent, ultra-violent yeah. person Drool, like drooling excessively and incapable of swallowing, getting into fights. It's an amazing mechanism for transmitting itself. Mm. Wow. What, what about, what about, uh, is there any indication that there's STDs out there that make you hornier? Um, that's a really good question. We would expect it, yeah. but I think humans are already so good at being horny that it would be hard to figure out. We're, yeah. We're pretty big. We're, we're primates. We're pretty good at wanting sex. Can't get hornier. <laughs> I mean, we, huh? Yeah, you could. I wonder. No, 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 no. Um, 
Um, you would expect that that should be true um, if the diseases were being limited by how much sex people were having. Um, huh. I don't know of any examples, but that doesn't mean they don't exist. It just means mm -hmm. that we maybe haven't quantified all of them. Or maybe more, n not even horny, more promiscuous, maybe. Oh, could, we definitely, uh, we, yeah, we, have, we do have some uh, good evidence for, um, not, not so much for sexually transmitted diseases, but genetically transmitted diseases. We actually do have some good evidence that there are some, some genetically transmitted diseases that increase both promis promiscuity behavior and also actually support uh, conception. You're, you, you're slightly more fecund if you have longer term genetic disorders for some of them. It's uh, complicated. Wow. Um, but yeah, so, Fascinating. So it's, evolutionary medicine is a wonderful and strange field. Um, and it is full of a lot of hypotheses that are hard to test. So we, but it's wonderful to have these kinds of conversations where we can go like sexually transmitted diseases should make you hornier. That's mm. a good point. I wonder how we would test that. And like, again, baseline horniness is a humans very, very good at wanting lots of sex. So, um, I mean, go off. <laughs> I, 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 I'm just thinking of all of the ways in which I'm in, going to incorporate the phase baseline horniness into my <laughs> into my life from now on oh there we got to we got to end things on on a nice uh on a nice laugh um do you do you have i mean this is like everything that you're saying i'm just like um this is the highlight that i need to post no this is the highlight no nope, <laughs> no nope, this is no people need to hear this part and and uh everything that you had to say was was so incredible is is there any um, last little for, for what, what public's ear that, um, that you do have. And I'm, I'm going to try to get this message out as far and wide as my reach is. Um, do you have Thank anything you. that we didn't, that we didn't get to, um, that we didn't get to talk about um, that, so that, that people need to know, like, right. I mean, I know there's, I know there's days worth of stuff we didn't get to talk about it, it, uh, uh, any any really really pressing things that you would uh, that you would love um, for people to know that we didn't address? So there's there's one thing, but I wouldn't like it to be the capstone. So if there's if there's a capstone idea of what we talked about, I would love for it to be the idea that there are things we can do to come together to make this better that aren't killing it, that aren't the extremes of either we will kill the economy or we will kill people. Mm -hmm. There are things we can do to help people survive this that require coming together, but we can do those. I'd love that to be the capstone. There is a thing we didn't talk about that I would love people to know, though, which is that when you hear debate in the scientific community right now, we are, we're, we're all working in parallel. We won't always agree. We know that some of what we're doing is wrong. And what we're doing is essentially crowdsourcing each other as experts to, to figure out, well, I'm going to do this thing that I know is wrong in this way, but I know is correct in this other way. You do the reverse. And we're going to collaborate to meet in the middle. And right now, science is doing something it's never done before, which is beautiful. We, we know peer review is how we make the best science, that we, we talk to each other and we review each other's work before it gets published as an authoritative study. Right now, for coronavirus, we've stopped doing that. And we've started simply using the web to post our science to each other in real time so that everyone can see. It's not just, did, did a couple of scientists agree it was good enough that everyone else should see it? Now it's really, we're making a lot of wild-ass guesses in mm. real time and crowdsourcing it as experts, not as lay people, as experts to each other in a massively parallel process to try and make this go faster and better. 
Hmm. What that means is sometimes you'll hear mixed messages or a new message where like today the answer is X and tomorrow the answer is it's not X, it's Y. And that doesn't mean that science is failing. It means science is succeeding. Mm-hmm. We are getting better information every day. And that means that sometimes we will go back and contradict ourselves because we You learned. said don't eat cheeseburgers. Now you're saying cheeseburgers are good. What are, what's going exactly. on? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so I think it is an important thing we didn't touch on that. We are be, it would be a failure of ours not to learn that we were sometimes wrong. Mm-hmm. And so, so I, I'd like to, to get that message out. But seriously, if there's a single capstone message I'd like to get out from our conversation today, it really is just, it's a false dichotomy to think of it's either the economy or human life. There is so much that we can be doing that would help fix this outbreak without crashing and burning the nation. Mm. We, and we can, we can do better. And if, and if we don't have leadership, let's make some. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Nina Pfefferman. You are so amazing. Thank you so much for what you do. Keep on doing your great work. I can't uh, wait to uh, hopefully uh, spread the word some more. Um, and thank you, and, and thank you, Shane, for making us laugh. So this, this, these podcasts are informative and wonderful, and I love them. But also, thank you generically. I love your work, and right now, all of us need a lot of laughter. And so well, the comedians are. I, I might be trying to work it to keep us alive, but you're trying to work to keep us sane. So thank you. Well, we're all trying. So thank you. Um, and best of luck and thank you listeners for, uh, for tuning in please 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 share this message if, if not this if not this link if not this viewing this information spread it as near and far as you possibly can and there's a lot more episodes coming your way thank you yeah.